This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com, to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Talk is Jericho, baby. Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho, mama. Talk is me. Oh, yeah. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And it's Friday. And that means we got another Duff McKagan joke of the week here for you. Hey, Chris Jericho. You know what a dyed blonde and a airplane have in common? No, I don't, Duff. What? They both have a black box. Uh, okay. Like I said, the jokes is kind of taking a vacation. We'll be back with you soon. Thank you. Bye. Yeah, we appreciate all the bad jokes from Duff. Uh, the bigger the groan, the better. And uh, that's uh, our friend Duff McKagan calling in from around the globe to give us the absolute worst pieces of shit jokes you can think of. Uh, what a great guy, uh, of course, from a great rock and roll band called Guns and Roses. And thanks to Duff for checking in every Friday with Duff McKagan's Joke of the Week. And thanks again to uh, Dave Meltzer for checking in because there's nothing funny about today's guest and topic. We're going to do the Montreal screw job 20 years later. It's been two decades since the famous double cross finish between Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels went down. But the impact it had on pro wrestling is still being felt today. It upended the biz, especially the WWE, which may not have risen to its extraordinary heights in the late 90s and early 2000s with the rise of the Attitude Era. There may not have been the villainous Mr. McMahon character, which took business through the roof and provided the uh, breakout star Stone Cold Steve Austin with his best rival. You saw that this past Monday on Raw. Uh, and if, also, if it wouldn't have been so successful, they might not have ever be, uh, been able to become a publicly traded company. Maybe WCW would have won the Monday Night Wars. So many what-ifs if the events in Montreal had not happened. Uh, it's changed the way wrestling was presented on TV then and is now. Dave Meltzer and I talk about it all, all the details and events in the 12 months leading up to Montreal uh, all the details from what happened in the ring and the locker room afterwards, the events and the immediate aftermath and months and even years down the line and how all the circumstances that lined up just perfectly made Montreal what it was. It's the Montreal screw job 20 years later right here on Talk is Jericho. And you're not going to have to wait 20 years to see Fozzie because we are back on the road again starting Sunday, this Sunday, uh, January 28th in Paris, France, January 3rd. 
30th in Hamburg, 31st in Copenhagen, Denmark, February 1st in Oslo, February 3rd, Tilburg, Netherlands, February 4th, Oberhausen, the 6th is Munich, the 7th is Luxembourg, the 8th is Stuttgart, Germany, Zurich, Switzerland on the 9th, Barcelona on the 11th, and the 12th is Madrid, and the 13th is Bilbao. We are going all across Europe supporting Steel Panther, the main support for Steel Panther, and we are still doing VIPs, so if you want to be a part of the greatest VIP uh, uh, experience that you're going to get in rock and roll, you get to meet me, meet the band, take pictures, get some stuff signed, and most importantly, we'll play a short mini concert for you, three, four, five songs, whatever we uh, have the time for, songs you're not going to hear later on that night, and songs that uh, that cover songs you may have never never heard us play before. It's going to be happening. Go to FozzyRock.com to find out all the information about VIPs, and you can buy VIPs if you live in the States for when we continue the Judas Rising Tour 2018 with Through Fire, Santa Cruz, and Dark Sky Choir in the United States starting February 28th in New Orleans. Lots of dates going coast to coast, so make sure you check that out, FozzyRock.com. Get your tickets, get your VIP meet and greet, meet the band, get something signed, uh, take pictures, and get a mini concert just for you. All that information on FozzyRock.com and all the information on the Montreal Screwjob 20 years later with Dave Meltzer begins now. All right, Dave. Uh, Dave Meltzer back here on the show to talk about something that's, in my opinion, changed the course of wrestling history in a lot of ways. The 20-year anniversary of the uh, Montreal Screwjob. And this is something that I've wanted to do with you for a while, but it's very timely right now. Um, Do you agree with that? Is it something that changed the course of the business? You know, it's funny because I did a show about a week ago, and I hadn't really thought about it that way, but then I started thinking about, you know, the different ramifications, and I think that it... It's probably the second biggest story that I've covered, I think, when it comes to pro wrestling itself. I've been doing this for, you know, 40-plus years. Right. And the, the ramifications are unreal when you really think back on it because it changed a lot of ways that, that people talked as far as the television version of wrestling. You know, like there was always the underground newsletters, but the TV presentation was always that wrestling's real and you never... Um, you know, you may wink and do certain things, but you never go so far as to essentially on television admit that matches are predetermined, which in the aftermath of this, Vince McMahon went on TV and did, and that changed the whole course of the business. And Brett, who would have been, you know, one of the last people to ever publicly do that because of how he was raised, did it, too. You know, mm-hmm. they both did it. You know, two people who never would publicly talk like that were talking like that because of this. It, it, it inadvertently created the evil Mr. McMahon character, which, you know, led to WWE's un- unbelievable rise in popularity to a level that they pretty much, you know, that, that year was probably the strongest year in many ways of all time, or modern times anyway. And we had, you know, the heel general managers thing. And we still have these authority figures today, 20 years later, that, that Right. Really, you know, it's it changed the whole template of what pro wrestling is that, you know, we had different finishes where the heel authority figure screws the baby face over and over again. It it led to Steve Austin. I mean, Steve Austin was going to be big either way, but I think Steve Austin got much, much bigger between this and Tyson. I mean, over the next six months, Steve Austin exploded. I don't know that it changed the course of the wrestling war and killed WCW because I really think... Even though that happened, I really think WCW's death was a self-destruction and not mm-hmm. 
so much. I mean, Vince's popularity certainly didn't help them. You know, the WWE's popularity and how much they grew in the next couple of years didn't help WCW. But I think WCW, um, it, you know, they, I think they put themselves out of business more than Vince put them out of business. But, but there is a combination of both, I mean, without a doubt. Yeah, so yeah, unbelievable changes in the business, all because of that, that weird, all the weird stuff that went down essentially in the week or a couple of weeks before that match in Montreal. Well, first of all, just just quickly as a segue, the, the, the biggest story would be the Benoit thing, I imagine. Right? Absolutely, gotcha. Absolutely, yeah. But, but so let me ask you this, because you mentioned something very, very poignant when you talked about how Vince became this evil authority figure, the evil GM, the evil owner that we still have to this day with you know Stephanie or whoever's you know the general managers of Raw and SmackDown or whatever. Was that the first time in the business that they had kind of an evil authority figure? Uh, no, 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 Eric actually did it first. Oh, okay, wow. Okay, yeah, good. Eric Bischoff did it first. And actually in Memphis, and there, there may have been another one, but in Memphis, um, years earlier, Tom Renesto, um, they did a thing where Tom Renesto came in as the general manager. And, I mean, it was actually something that actually started in roller games. Um, it was a huge oh, wow. angle in the roller games around 1971 in Los Angeles, and then they repeated it in all the other cities because it did so well. But Memphis did it, I'm going to guess it's the late 80s, where um, Tom Ernesto came in as the general manager, and he was fine, and then slowly morphed into this feud with Jerry Lawler because they both had big egos, and it was done in a realistic way. But as time went on, Ernesto became more and more of a heel and you know, wanted to fire Lawler, and Jerry Jerry had to step in and, and, and go like, you can't fire our biggest attraction, and he's going like, well, how can I be the, the general manager if I can't fire this indignant wrestler? And you know, so they, they had a feud that, that played out, and it was actually very well done. Well, I mean, and I want to kind of get into that, but, but let's not kind of get out of order here. Because yeah. it's so funny when you talk about it, too, about how times have changed. And it's only 20 years. And even for me, I've been in the business 27 years. And how I first came in, I always say I had one foot in the old school uh, everything is kayfabe. Everything is real if someone asks you, and one foot in the new school. This was kind of the last vestiges of. of when finishes really, really matter about who won and who lost, and the whole concept that they even had to do this seems so ridiculous now in 2017, but in 1997, it still was a really big deal. You know, it's so funny because that's the same thing. I, I can remember there was a WWE guy who I don't want to mention who was a young guy who was, came over my house, and I think this was around 2004, 2005, and we watched Wrestling with Shadows. And, I mean, at that point, it was only seven, eight years. And he, you know, vaguely knew the story, but didn't really know the story. And, you know, so I was kind of telling him, like, the background of everything. And when it was over, and I'm watching this in 2004, 2005, and it's, and it's over. And I remember when it first came out how much that movie, you know, the different things I thought. And I go, like, the movie's over. I'm going, like, this is the most ridiculous thing in the world. And it's only seven <laughs> years later. What, you know, today, why would you fight over, you know, the world championship or the finish of a wrestling match? It's not that big of a deal. Yet to Vince and Brett, and, and you know, and this happened with others, whether it was Hogan or Ric Flair or other guys that were on top, Macho Man. I mean, these things were actually pretty common in those days where, you know, people lived and died based on their finish of their matches and creative control. And, 
and wanting to change finishes in the World Championship. You know what the World Championship meant to Hogan and Ric Flair and, and, and people in fans of that era as compared to now, and it's, mm-hmm. it's still big. I mean, you know, you know it's still a big deal, but it's, 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 it's a different feel than it was back in, in that other era. You know, it's funny, uh, there's two prong conversation here. One, as you mentioned, that I heard, it's interesting, uh, Flair and Bret Hart, last time we were in Philly, or it might have been a couple of years ago, and Aptor was there, and they both were kind of ribbing on the square, so to speak, with Aptor, like, oh, yeah, I can't believe you put him at number one in the world over me in 1992. Well, yeah, I can't believe you put him. Like, those ratings in Pro Wrestling Illustrated yeah. still bothered those two guys. <laughs> Years later, that one was slotted ahead of the other uh, in the in the gimmick, you know, bullshit wrestling magazine ratings. Even that's how much that sort of stuff meant. Well, I mean, it's funny because you know, Brett and and Flair both took so much pride in the idea that they were the best, mm-hmm. and in their own minds, I'm sure they both thought that they were, yeah, and and res- still respected each other. But I, I'm sure there's. Because, I, I mean, Brett even sort of had told me that you know he used to be mad at me in the '90s. Because he thought he had surpassed Flair, and I didn't, or maybe mm. I did, but I never wrote it. You know what I mean? Right. You know, but I was always, you know, I grew up as a Flair fan, so you know, whatever. But I was, a, I was a big Bret Hart fan too. So, but you know how that goes. I mean, you, you when you really think you are the best, and and you feel like you're not getting credit, you know what I mean? It's kind of yeah. a weird thing. Well, and it was different then too, because this, for example, a Dave Meltzer, you know, opinion meant a lot more because there wasn't every single person understanding or knowing what the business was. So you were kind of like the insider of the insider and your, you know, your word probably had a lot of precedent more because of that, you know, than anything else. Yeah, I guess. I, I also, I also think too, that when you're talking about, um, you know, Brett and having this issue with, with Vince and I think now Vince has so much more power now, like you would never have the click you know, going off and doing their own thing. You'd never have any debate over the title. Maybe Brock might have an issue, but at the end of the day, he's going to do what Vince says. Right. Back then, 20 years ago, Vince still, it was still, like I said, one foot in the old, one foot in the new, where the guys had the power to do stuff like this. Now it'd be like, Chris, just do it. But yeah. Vince, I don't think it's like, just do it. All right, I'll do it. You know what I mean? That's kind of different now. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the whole thing of like you going in there, like, like you, you know, you're 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 top guy and everything. You going in there and they say like, you know, we want you to put over so and so, and and you going like, I don't think so. I don't think he just you know, whatever excuse you have. I don't think he deserves it. I don't think it's the right time. Whatever. I mean, he could he may listen to your viewpoint, but it's not like at the end of the day, you know, like when you say that to him, it, you're getting your way. Well, yeah, exactly. You know, you do what you're told to do, and that's kind of how it is. But you mentioned there was a lot of creative control. Let's go back to, like, you know, I'm not sure if it's 95 or 96. What kind of led to the circumstances for Brett to even have to or want to or uh, be forced to leave the WWE to go to WCW in the first place? Well, you're talking about the... the, the original negotiations or the second? Cause, cause, so, I, so, I guess just where, where does the story begin that kind of led to, to this Montreal screw job? I, I guess <laughs> that you would probably go to um, so 96 WrestleMania, it's Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels. Shawn Michaels wins the title. That's the hour-long draw? In, in, or, in the 61-minute match. Iron Man match, yeah. Right, the Iron Man match in, in uh, Anaheim. Right. So, so Bret's contract expires very shortly after the match, and he's taken off to do Lonesome Dove, which was a TV series at the time, and he was going to do some acting. And he kind of teased that he would retire, but, I mean, deep down he wasn't going to retire. But, you know, he was going to take several months off, and then he would come back, and then the next year's WrestleMania, they would do the rematch. They did a finish, too. You know, the way they did the finish was to build a rematch for the next WrestleMania. Right. So that was the plan at that time. 
while he's off, his contract really has expired, and WCW gets wind of that. And, you know, this was the height of the wrestling. Warren Brett was one of the most valuable guys in the business, and he was probably Vince's most valuable guy at that time. So he's going full force. This guy's a free agent. We can get him. And they made, you know, they really went strong with an offer to him. They made an offer of $2.8 million a year, which in, you know, 1996, I mean, even now that's giant money, but in 1996 it was unheard right. of money unless you were Hulk Hogan. Right. So, you know, it was like this, this great offer. And Vince, of course, got wind of it. And Brett really didn't want to go. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was a, an awful lot of money to, to turn down at the same time. So it ends up where, you know, Vince gets wind of it, of course. He tells Vince or, or whatever it is. And it turns into a bidding war, which some people at the time I remember thinking like, oh, that's so bad doing this bidding war. I always thought, you're an athlete. You've got a short career. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, Get get the number as high as you can. That's that's your job, right? right. It's like so, like a hockey player would do, or football, or anybody. Right, right, right. So so, um, but you know, there's something like fans have like the idea that there should be loyalty to brands, and and to a, and to a degree, Brett did have that. But you know, Vince ended up you know really scared. He'd lost Hall, he'd lost Nash. Hogan was on fire. WCW was winning the war at the time, and Brett was a real key guy. He didn't want to lose Brett, so. He tried to make an offer. He couldn't go as high as WCW at the time, but he made a 20-year, he offered him a 20-year contract. So in a sense, it was probably more money in the long run for Brett guaranteed over the 20 years than the three years of the WCW, but, but far less a year. It's $1.5 million a year right. as opposed to 2.8. Brett took it, you know, whether he should have or shouldn't have. I mean, he took a lot less money short-term to stay with WWF because I think he didn't have confidence that WCW was even though they were winning at the time, that, that they would be in there for the long run. I always felt that he, had, he felt a real sense of loyalty to Vince as well. Yeah. Well, Vince made him a star. Right. Vince picked him. You yeah. know? I mean, there is that sense of loyalty, sure. There's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of reasons. I think he was comfortable there. You know, mm-hmm. He'd already established himself there rather than going in a new world. Right. He knew he'd be, you know, he knew he'd be a top guy in WWF. I mean, with that money, he would have been a top guy in WCW. But as we also saw, he did get that money down the, lo- the line, and they... Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, when you look at how they used him, I mean, it's still mind-boggling. So, so, but anyway, he stayed, you know, so he signed a 20-year contract. Well, over the next year in 97, you know, WWF business is starting to falter. They're losing a lot of money. And they, was, they were losing money at the time. And Vince had to take out some loans to keep going. I mean, that's how bad really? it was. Like big so, loans, loans from, the, like, banks and stuff? Yeah. Really? Yeah, he took out some loans. Oh, wow. Going. I mean, there was, there was the day where they repossessed the water coolers. That's how bad it got. <laughs> I never heard that story before. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and all the, a lot of the upper management got cut. That's why, like, J.J. Dillon left, because I think they cut his pay, like, 40%. Wow. That's why he went to WCW. And, and you know, no, things, were, things were tight. And Brett was guaranteed $1.5 million a year, which in those days, you know, for what they were taking in, that was, a, that was a, a lot of money. And Vince went to Brett and asked if he could restructure the deal. And Brett, you know, having turned down $2.8 million, now they're asking him to restructure this 20-year contract. He said no. Mm-hmm. So I think at that point, that's probably where, right. you know, among other things, probably where tensions got. And there was a lot of things going down. Now, what ended up is Vince went to him and kind of suggested, well, I don't know if we can afford your deal. So if, if you want, why don't you open up negotiations with Eric and, and, and see if you can get that deal and, and go, which mm-hmm. was unbelievable considering they were in the middle of the wrestling war. But the banks, I think, wanted Vince to cut back on, you know, the, the, the monthly expenses, and he just felt that that Brett money, he had to cut back on it. Yeah. You know, not, 
so that kind of led to where this went. Now, the funny thing is, is this is probably around the summer. By September, Vince did one thing. It's, it sounds so simple in hindsight. And then, you know, but what it was was the pay-per-views. I think they were doing these, these in-your-house pay-per-views, and I forget. I think the price might have been nineteen ninety nine at the time. Right. Might have been 15 or 19 I think it was nine, I, th- I think it started 15 and ended up 19 And then he would have the big four, which would be at $29. Mm-hmm. So, so what Vince did was, and Eric had already done this. Eric had already done 12 pay-per-views a year at the 29 number, which Vince thought was ridiculous when it happened. I remember he even told me, he goes, like, you can't do... You can't promote a big show of that level every single month and have people buy it on pay-per-view. You can only do it four times a year. So that's, we do the low-price pay-per-view as like a mini thing. We don't expect a lot of buys. It's just a small thing. Well, Eric went and just said, we're going to do 12 a year. And Eric was successful with 12 a year at the regular price. So Vince followed Eric's thing. And by the added price of the pay-per-views, it made a difference between losing money and making money. Wow, right. It was right. that simple. So by September, so WWE is, is back in the black. They're doing okay. They're not knocking them dead, but they're doing okay. And, you know, he pretty much, at this point, now he can afford Brett, Brett's money, but now, now there's already tension, and Brett's already opened up talks with Eric, and now it's gotten, it got weird. And I think that certain things happened, and um, Brett was unhappy with the direction of the company. I think he's thought... Hey, I turned down this ridiculous money offer, and then look at what Vince did to me. You know, it's supposed to be a twenty-year deal in the first in the first year, and now I can get this ridiculous money offer. Right. So at this point already, you know, they're talking back and forth, and and I, you know, I think that with, with looking back with hindsight, I think that that tension probably had both of them kind of doing, you know, not trusting each other or whatever or whatever it was, and which which led to things because I think if you kind of look at it, if, if neither of them had that negativity, I think Brett probably would have wanted to stay. He would have been able to keep the money. I think yeah. they didn't really want him to leave now that he's making money again, especially at that time. But, you know, there was just so much going on that... I um, think when you when you have one guy asking you to restructure your deal, that's going to piss Brett off, and then Brett saying no is going to piss Vince off, and that's probably kind of where all the, the feelings of unrest started. And then throw in the fact that Sean is on the rise and Sean and Brett don't like each other. Right. That didn't help either. That didn't help. And, and also, the reality is, is that Austin was about, you know, the, the handwriting was on the wall. Austin was about to surpass both of them. Wow. And Austin was, Austin was clearly going to be the guy. I think Vince recognized that. And he was paying Brett as the guy. There was also the thought of, you know, I remember one of the guys in WWE told me this, WF told me this at the time, you know, where Brett's making, let's say Brett's making a million five a year, and Sean's making 750, and Undertaker's making 750, which I think were pretty close to what the numbers were then. Mm-hmm. And Austin was probably making less at the time, or maybe the same. And it's like, now, you know, Brett's not so far ahead of these guys to where they're not going to look and go, like, how come he's making this much? And so right. Vince, Vince kind of doesn't want this salary structure to all of a sudden <laughs> get to this level where, where Sean especially, you know, Sean's not going to be very happy making less money than Bret Hart. There was that weird rivalry that those two had over who was the best and who was, you know, Vince's favorite, which, which was going on at the time. And Undertaker is Undertaker. And, you know, Austin, if Austin takes off, you know, obviously, obviously Austin made multiples of that, you know, not that many years later, but it was a different... The business was so different from 1997 to 1998 anyway. You know, mm. the whole business took off in 98 to a level that nobody could have perceived. But, but at the time, you know, Vince is thinking like, oh, my God, all these top guys are going to want a million five because Brett's making a million five. And I think that played into it. It's like, if I get rid of that, 
Now the top number is, let's say, 750 or a million. You know, it's not so bad. Right. The famous number to this day, the magic number. Right. The million. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So does Brett then call Bischoff and say, hey, can we talk about that deal again? Or how did that work? Yeah, I think, yeah, that's pretty much what happened. Vince, Vince encouraged him to do it, which, mm-hmm. which was funny. You know, when, when, when the whole story was explained to me, the one thing that shocked the hell out of me, because this was, I knew they were talking. You know, I mean, that wasn't a secret that Vince and, and Eric were talking and all this was going down. But the one that I never knew until, you know, Brett actually told me first, but the WWE, you know, pretty much did as well, was that it was Vince who told Brett to, you know, why don't you call up Eric and see if you can get that deal again, because they were just... So then, like, even in the last week, though, it's like they're going back and forth, and Brett's like... This is like the last week of October. Survivor Series is the first week of November. So even in, in October, where we're at crunch time, and... You know, it's like Vince and Brett are still talking regularly, and Vince is saying he wants to keep him. So Brett's going, like, what's the creative? And the creative at this point is essentially to get everything to Austin, not for Brett to be the top guy. Right. And, you know, like, you know, he was going through, like, you're going to do this and this and this and this. But at the end, it's like, it's going to go to Austin, which I don't think Brett had any animosity at all towards Austin. But it wasn't like he was that confident. I don't know. It was like... Vince wasn't wooing him or pitching him as hard as maybe he expected, and then he he's got this new deal which was a little less. I mean, it was two point five million. Mm-hmm. He's got this two point five million dollar three year deal. He's not getting along with Vince that well at this point. So is that is that two point five a year, Dave? Yeah, two point five. Wow! Holy smokes! Okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. The original was two point eight a year. Right. It was eight point four for three which was the 96 deal. So the new deal was actually slightly less, but it's in, it's still ridiculous. Money oh yeah. It's 10% less big deal. Right. Right. You know, more money than he ever would have, you know, let's face it. And you're, you're, if you look at the 1997 era and you're, let's say you're Bret Hart, in 1995, 1996, even, do you ever really believe you're going to make 2.5 million a year? Right, as a yeah. Wrestler? Yeah, you exactly. Know? Yeah. So, so it's this deal that he never thought he would get. And, you know, he's going back and forth, but in the end, he decided to take the deal. So this is, it's, it's, I think it's Halloween night, or it was either October 30th or 31st, and he um, accepts the deal. And Hall and Nash were calling up and, you know, trying to woo him. You know, everyone's trying. Like, and I think a lot of people thought, this is, you know, Brad Hart's moving over. Like, this is going to be the catalyst of, you know, where they really take over from, from WWF, and WWF's really going to be in trouble losing Brett. And the funny thing is, is, and I thought that, too. I thought, like, this is a blow that they couldn't afford. And as it turned out, you know, it was not that losing Brett was part of it, but, you know, obviously, you know, the, 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 everything turned around the next year in, in a completely different way than we would have imagined that week. Yeah, totally, totally, totally. And then that's, I guess, was, was it something that Brett had for years, the creative control? Or was no, that... no, no, no. He had, I mean, when he negotiated his contract in 96, one of the things that he got put in, you know, when they were negotiating back and forth, was creative control. But it was not creative control. It was like, it was like creative control at the end of the career. Because he was afraid of, of being buried at the end. Because, you know, a lot of guys, when it's the end, get buried. So he, he wanted it at the end. So he had creative control at the end of his career. Well, this, you know, the end of the contract. Well, that meant he essentially had creative control during this, this period on the way out. So he, he didn't have it like, like Hogan had it completely, right? Brett had it only for a term. Which is so amazing that even this, that, like creative control, you would never get that nowadays from yeah. Vince, ever. Yeah. 
I mean, but Hogan would still take it, even if it's not written down, and some of the top guys would. You know, Hogan probably would have been the last guy, because I remember, like, with, with, with Hogan, um, when, when Hogan was coming in in the, in the 2000s, you know, when you worked with him in that period, I remember that there was that thing where, um, where Hogan put over Brock, and I, I don't know if it was contractual or not, but, you know, Hogan thought by, and, I, and, and who knows what was actually said, but Hogan thought by putting over Brock, that he was going to get it back and he was going to beat Brock for the title. And this is when Vince was really on the Brock bandwagon and wasn't, wasn't thinking of beating, you know, having especially Hulk Hogan win the title from Brock. And that's when they had the big falling out and Hogan walked out and, and wouldn't come back because he wasn't going to get the title from Brock. Um, you know, so, so there was, but I don't know that that was like in the contract or anything, but, you know, Hogan was probably the last guy that I could think of who, no, he must have, I'll, I'll tell you why I, I know he did. Hogan had it, because when Hogan worked with Randy Orton, Hogan definitely had control over who would win that match because I remember, you know, Hogan had the bad knee mm-hmm. and um, was probably only going to work the match with Randy Orton and then he was going to be off for a long time and Randy was on the rise. And I remember thinking that, like, you know, for Hogan's business, you know, I, I, it would actually be better for him to lose to Randy because he would get sympathy for losing. It would help Randy anyway. And you could do a rematch months later, a year later, whatever. And, you know, Hogan can beat Randy. It's no big deal, right? You know, Randy could afford to lose to Hogan if he right. beat him once. But Hogan refused to lose. And also with Sean, with Sean, you know, when they wanted to do that program where, where you know, Sean obviously wanted to beat Hogan, and Hogan just flat out said no. <laughs> so, so Hogan definitely was, had creative control um, when he was with Vince, even, even after all this. It's interesting to me too because when you're talking about like so so when does Vince know that 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 Brett is definitely going to to WCW and why doesn't he take the title off him earlier than waiting to like this last week? I mean, you would think if he didn't have a guy under contract and knew that like if I was working there and I wasn't under contract, you know, or my deal was up in December first and I was the champion and I hadn't signed anything new by November first, I would lose the title. That's just kind of the way it goes. Yeah, I don't understand why he didn't just take the title off of him earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, because this whole thing was going down for, for you know, whatever months, was, five five weeks. Oh, weeks. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean, why he he kept the title on him through all this? I mean, that's that's an unanswered question. I think it was because Brett and Sean was such a hot match at the time. I mean, you know, the thing that people don't even realize is that the the Montreal match was the biggest, even though it was Survivor Series and it wasn't WrestleMania, it wasn't SummerSlam, it wasn't Rumble. They did the biggest buy rate of the year for Survivor Series because Brett and Sean, well, number one, because the WrestleMania wasn't that strong that year, even though it, it had the Brett Austin match, which was one of the great matches of all time. But it wasn't a strong, you know, it didn't do big business. Whereas, mm. um, so this was the biggest match they had all year was the Brett Sean match. And I think maybe in Vince's mind, it was still a month to month business, right? It wasn't like now where, you know, if you have a bad month, who the hell cares? You're making so much money. Right. I mean, this was a thing where, you know, there was always that emphasis on every pay-per-view and every dollar and everything like that. And it's like, this is our biggest match of the year. We don't want to compromise. We don't want to throw it away. And the biggest match is, is Brett and Sean with, I guess, the idea of Brett as champion going into Montreal. I, I, I don't know. But whatever it was, he... Uh, so, so it's like October 30th or 31st. And again, I don't, I remember, don't remember the date. But, my, my, but at that point, it's done. He signed the contract. His WWE deals up November 1st. He starts with WCW November 1st. So at that point, yeah, Vince is just bombarding him with ideas to get that belt off of him. Right? You right. know what I mean? Right, right, right. And, yeah. and at this point, you know, Brett's got creative control, and Brett's mentality is that I should be champion going into Montreal because of the nature of the feud and the Canadian fans, and, and you don't want to flatten the match. So Brett's thing is, is like, you know, I'll lose the title, but I'm not going to lose it in Canada. 
I'll lose it right after Canada to anyone, but, but not in Canada. And he's, because of some words that had happened with him and Sean a couple of times in September, there were like a couple of incidents, which actually, there's a bunch of incidents that all played into this, which again is so weird, because I guess we'll start with um, Sean, Sean and Brett had the fight in, I believe it was, was it Hartford? Hartford, yeah. Okay, so it was in the dressing room backstage, and they're pulling each other's hair, and it got broken up. So they, they, have, their, they have their fight, and um, I think Brett hurt his knee in the, in the match. There was the, um, Sean and Brett were supposed to wrestle at WrestleMania, and Sean quit the promotion, said he was retiring in February, so he was out of WrestleMania, so that match didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And Brett, of course, is thinking that Sean is trying to get out of losing after he had put Sean over the year before. Um, so that's Brett's mentality. And then Sean comes back. And I, don't, do you, I don't know if you remember the match, but it was Sean and I think it was Austin against Owen Hart and Davey Boy Smith. Mm-hmm. It was a tag match. Sean comes back. And the first thing, you know, he's, he, six weeks, eight weeks earlier, he's got a career-ending knee injury. He's never going to come back. Well, now Sean's back right after WrestleMania, right after not doing the match with Brett. Does this backflip into the ring, and he comes out and performs like, you know, the great Shawn Michaels, like when you, the, this was one of those Shawn Michaels performances where when it's over, you go like, oh my God, like this guy is at a different level from like everybody. Right. Shawn Michaels, it was, it was the, the, the best Shawn Michaels. And I mean, as great as those other three guys were, it's just like, oh my God. And he's just doing all this stuff. And then when it's over, you know, the first thing I'm thinking is like, and it's pro- he probably did have a knee injury. I, I, don't, I don't doubt it. But you're watching it going like, there's no way this guy was ever hurt. <laughs> right, 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 right. Not yeah. come to that conclusion. I'm sure Brett came to that conclusion. So Brett's mad that Sean bailed on that match, right? Mm-hmm. So then they're supposed to have another match, and this time Brett hurt his knee, and, and and Vince had stipulated the match was the match stipulations were if Brett couldn't beat Sean in less than 15 minutes, then Brett could never wrestle in the United States again. So Brett was going over in under 15 minutes. So that was obviously to placate Brett. Right. To make up for the fact that Sean didn't lose to him at WrestleMania. Yeah. So it, it, the, the irony is this time it's Brett that got hurt, and that match never happened either. So then come September or so, Vince goes, there's, there's a bunch of other things that happened, you know, um, over the year. There's, there's weird tension. I think yeah. some something to do with Dwayne Johnson. There was a match where um, Brett was supposed to wrestle Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. Brett was supposed to wrestle The Rock on television and beat him with a sharpshooter. The Rock wasn't that big of a star at this point, so it's not as ridiculous as it sounds. It actually was probably, if, if, on that day, if you were figuring it out, that's the finish you would do. Mm-hmm. And Brett refused to beat him um, because he just thought that I shouldn't beat this guy. He's got all the world, this world's of potential. I don't want to beat him, and I think that he, he didn't win. And mm. Hunter and Sean were furious, you know, which was weird because what does that have to do with them? Right, 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 right. Because right. they probably didn't like Rocky, that's why. Didn't like Rock. That's when it kind of came out where Brett, who kind of liked Rock anyway, was like, they see him as competition and they want to knock him off now. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then there was another one where there was a TV match where Hunter was supposed to pin Brett with outside interference, but he was still supposed to win. And Brett was, Brett was the champion at the time, and Brett goes, so I'm going to work with Hunter. And Vince said, no. And it's like, if I'm the champion... And I'm losing a non-title match. It should only be to the guy who I'm going to be facing in a big match. Right. And so Brett said, so no. Then they did a DQ finish. So now Hunter's mad at Brett, right? Yeah. Because for Hunter at that time, beating Brett, interference or not, that's where at the level Hunter was at that time, that's a giant win. Huge, of course. And Brett wouldn't do it. 
Okay, so there's that. Then there was, um, so Sean isn't losing anywhere, and Sean's bragging in the dressing room that I don't do jobs, which mm-hmm. was probably endeared him to everyone at that point. <laughs> and um, there was a period after the fight where Sean said he wouldn't work with Owen, he wouldn't work with Davey, and he wouldn't work with Brett. Okay, he, he later didn't, you know, he later, you know, did work with all of them. But there was a period where it's like, you know, he tried to sue WWE or threaten unsafe working environment. I, I'll work with anyone, but I won't work with those three guys. Yeah. Which, of course, not working with Brett, at that point meant doesn't have to do the job for Brett that he's supposedly owed, right? Okay. <laughs> right. So finally, he, Sean relaxes that and everything. So now there's, there's going to be a match in Manchester, England, Davy Boy Smith, the European champion. And, and what, what I remember about this is, you know, I, I was blanket told the week before this match. It was by, by people in the office who were furious at Sean because Sean was getting away with everything in the world, and he wasn't losing to anybody, and he was... Which and and it, what, what worse was he was bragging about it, you know. Mm-hmm. So they were they, they were going like, okay, in Manchester, you know, Davy Boy Smith is going to retain his title. Sean is going to show that he's a professional. He's going to do business. Davy Boy is winning. Davy obviously has been told this long before I'm told this because he's on TV in England doing the, when they did the localized interviews, dedicating this match to his sister who was dying of cancer. Right. He goes, I dedicate this match to my sister who's dying. You know, she, I don't know if he knew if she was dying of cancer, but she had cancer, and it was in, she was in bad shape, so I'm going to dedicate this match to my sister. So everything's fine. The day of the match in Manchester, they come to Davey and go, Sean's going over. So now imagine, imagine Davey now at this point. Okay? So, right. and, and this is all, you know, Davey's Brett's brother-in-law. They're all family. So this is more tension, okay? And, and Sean won the match. Um, and they were furious. So, so there's that. So, so those are all coming on. Well, at the same point, Vince goes to Brett, I want to put the title on Sean in Montreal at, Wrestle, at um, Survivor Series. And Brett goes to Sean and goes, you know, we've had a lot of problems, this and that, you know, let's just be professional about it. Vince wants the title to go on. He goes, you know, um, so... I'm, I'm, I'm happy to put you over in Montreal. And then Sean goes, thank you for saying that, because if the roles reversed, I wouldn't do the same thing for you. Right. I mean, can you imagine? Yeah. And, and to me, that's, and he said that, he said that twice. There was, there's a, he's, not from the same words, but that was the one where like, where, where, where a lot of guys were just like, why wouldn't he put him over? Why wouldn't he put him over? And I remember yeah. like different guys who were champions of the past who couldn't really understand Brett's point of view, where I said like, if, 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 your rival said this to you six weeks before, what would you do? Absolutely. And, and it's like, because if, if Sean had never said that, I think none of this happens. Yeah, if someone said that to me, I would go, all right, go f*** yourself. All right, let's, okay, that's it, done. And I, and, and I think that's a, a missing detail nowadays when people go, Brett was such a mark to not, if someone said that to me, there is imagine? no way. Yeah, could you imagine if you were, the, at, at the time, you were the champion, you were the top guy in the company, and there was a guy, and you, you know, you had tension with him, but what the hell, right? It's your time to lose. That's not even an issue. And the guy said that to your face. Absolutely. Wouldn't you go to Vince and go, this guy, I don't even want to work with him, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there is no way I'm ever losing to this guy again, unless right, he wants right. to shoot with me. Right, exactly. Right, 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 right. I mean, Luthes did that with Buddy Rogers. Yeah. Know, where, and, that, and it wasn't even Buddy Rogers saying he'd never put him over. It was Buddy Rogers insulted Strangler Lewis, who was Lou's buddy. And um, called him like whatever, and Lou just goes, and this is like in the '40s, and Lou goes, "I will never put over Buddy Rogers." And the next twenty years, no matter how much they wanted, you know, that's the one thing he would never do. Yeah, never put over Buddy Rogers, you know. And, and, and so, so anyway, so that was like that was a big one. So, so, but so anyway, so now we get to November. 
So Brett's gone. Brett's what's leaving. You know, he's going to be gone in a month. Mm-hmm. And Vince is just trying to get that belt off him. And he's going with, you know, every idea that he can come up with of, of him losing to Sean. And Brett's thing is, is like, I want to lose to Austin. I'll lose to anyone you say, but I want to lose to Austin. You know, there's no question he was going to lose. Mm-hmm. And there were legal letters back and forth, and Brett had creative control, and they're, they're, they're fighting over it. And they're going like, well, how about, you know, you lose in Detroit before, you know, he doesn't want to lose in Canada. So they go, how about you lose at this house show in Detroit? And it's just like, not to Sean until after Montreal. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then the last ditch efforts, this is the Wednesday before Montreal. And Vince goes to Brett. And, you know, so, I mean, when you go through this whole thing, I mean, you have to, like, I, I see Brett's point of view, but I also, you know, with hindsight, Vince was in a, the weirdest of, of weird positions, and that's something that never happened before, never happened again, and this is the key to it. So Vince is just looking for a compromise. He's got these two guys that, you know, are on bad terms. So he comes up with an idea, which is actually, to me, like, this was, this was the compromise. This was the right idea. I don't know why it took him so long to come up with it. He, and he calls up Brett, and this is, this is the Wednesday before the Sunday pay-per-view. And he goes, Brett, how about you beat Sean in Montreal? You beat him. He puts you over. And in return, you put Sean over, you know, wherever, whether it's Madison Square Garden House Show, whether it's Raw, whether it's the next pay-per-view. Yeah, Springfield, um, you Massachusetts. Over, you put him over clean. Mm-hmm. And Brett goes, yes, fine. Okay? And that, that's, that's your answer, right? Mm-hmm. Compromise. Okay? So he goes to Sean that right after, calls Sean up, and Sean's hemming and hawing and this and that, and, and Triple H is there with him. And Triple H goes, he's leaving the company, Sean. There's no way you put him over. Hmm. So there you go. <laughs> so now Vince is sitting there, and he's just going like... Which, once again, is so ridiculous. Vince is the boss. This is what you do. End of story. Right? But, but that's not what happened. Yeah. And so Sean wouldn't put Brett over. So at that point, he can't go and call Brett up and say, Sean will never put you over, because then Brett, you know, Brett might deck him in the match. Who the hell knows at this point the tension's so high, right? Yeah, if I'm going to put Brett and Sean in a shoot, I'm going with Brett. He came from the dungeon. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But who, who, you know? But it's like, it's like, but you can't even tell him because, I mean, what kind of a mood is Brett going to be in to do a match with Sean when he's flat out told that Sean will never yep. put him over again after he had agreed? You know, he he had compromised. Yes. Agreed to put so, so that's after the phone call with Sean. Vince is sitting there and it's like I've got these two guys, and you know, in his mind they're both completely unreasonable. So what do I do? And it's like, well, one of them's leaving and one of them's staying, and that's my answer. Sean's got to go over. And the only way that that was going to happen was, you know, essentially, so, so, so Vince goes, and he's in a meeting, and I don't know all of whom were at the meeting. There was a couple people. I think Russo may have been. Cornette probably was. But anyway, this is, this is all at Vince's house while these phone calls are going back and forth. And Vince is just livid at this point about this, this pay-per-view that's a few days away and a championship, and, he's, and Brett's going to WCW, and he's losing a wrestling war all at the same time. Right. So, so this is the mentality that Vince is going through. At the time, what do I do? And he just goes, we do the Moolah-Richter finish, which years and years ago, this in, in 85, I believe it was, 85, yeah, late 85 maybe, Wendy Richter was the champion, and for, you know, there was a contract dispute, and for whatever reason, he wanted to get the title off of her and fire her immediately and decided he would double-cross her with Moolah. And um, so they did the thing where the referee counted three, and Moolah just held her down, and Wendy didn't know what was going on, and Wendy got up and was started, like, not, she just didn't understand. And then, you know, 
that was the end. Wendy never worked for WWF again. Um, so he wanted to do that. And then it was kind of brought up, Vince, this is a terrible idea. Because that's, that's the only double-cross finish Vince knew because it was the one that he, that he did before. This is a terrible idea because, number one, if Sean holds him down, okay, Vince, he, he knows Sean did it, right? Right. He knows, he knows Sean was involved. You can't have Sean, you can't have Brett knowing that. What if that happens? He gets up, Brett gets up, knows exactly what happened, and knocks out Sean with a punch, which he may very well do at this point. And then he's going to WCW. He's going to be the biggest hero in the world. He just knocked out Shawn Michaels, and we'll have a world champion who won't be worth shit. Right. Because, so, so you absolutely can't do this finish, which, which you know, if, if that wasn't said, I think it may have gone down just like that. You know, where, I, I mean, who, who knows what would happen? But, but it's like, that was a risk that if, if it hadn't been brought up to Vince, they would have done it that way. So that's where the, you have to do it in a way where, Brett doesn't know Sean's in on it, so Brett can't get mad at Sean, and Sean has to act like he's not in on it, and he's as mad as Brett over what happens that he, you know. So that's where the whole idea of of, of we have to we have to put put together a scenario that even though Sean knew, Sean has to pretend he didn't know because because we can't have Brett beating up Sean with cameras on live television, right? Well, I mean that's yeah, and that's to me is. I, I think it's, it's a critical mass of all these different things all kind of coming together all at the same time. You know, it's, it's something that could probably have never really happened before or after just with all these factors, you know? It's the weirdest thing because it's like I, whenever, whenever I think back about how, how much, you know, like you said, how much this changed wrestling. And there's 50 different things that happened that led up to it that if you pulled one of them right. away, none of this ever happened. Yeah. And, and what happens to wrestling? Does, does WWF never take off to the level it did because of with Vince? You know, what if they succeeded in burying Rock? You know what I mean? How big does it get? What if they figured out Austin was going to get big and buried him first? It's like it's so fascinating when you look at the history of wrestling, how these, these yeah. little things end up, like, changing the entire landscape. It's I the mean, butterfly I mean, effect, yeah. And it's like even, I even remember uh, in the early 2000s before Rock left and Sean came back, Rock would not work with Sean. And I think it was stemmed back from that time frame, from the stuff that we, that you spoke about earlier. Rock would never want to have that match. It was the dream match of dream matches, but Rock was like, "I'm not doing it." Well, there's actually something earlier, which is another weird thing. Okay, so so that I think that that was part of it. But the Sean and Rock stuff actually dates back to when Rock was like 14, 15 years old. Sean was working in Hawaii for Rock's really? grandmother, and there was something that happened in the dressing room, and I forgot what it was, but. You know, it, it dated back that far, but essentially it probably was more of what we, we just talked about. Sure, yeah, you, yeah, there was you. a period where when Rock got to be such a big star, I remember him, you know, he, he told me the same thing. He just said, you know, I'm never going to work with Sean. I think after he retired, years later, he said he would have. But, mm -hmm. but when he was actually wrestling, no, he wouldn't. <laughs> you know, and I think that they, they, I, my impression is that they ended up making up. But, it, but yeah, it was a sore point well, for sure. You know, the, the Sean that I knew and worked with and had such great matches and, and angle with is not the Sean that we talk about you know, from 10 years earlier. Right. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. 
Hey, this is Chris Jericho inviting you to the first ever Rock and Wrestling Rager at Sea. Picture this rock and roll, wrestling, comedy, live podcasting, all on the open ocean from October 27th to the 31st, 2018, from Miami to Nassau. I'm bringing Hall of Fame wrestlers, some of the greatest rock and roll bands on the planet, and putting the first wrestling ring on a cruise ship ever. Don't be a stupid idiot. Make the list. Check us out at ChrisJerichoCruise.com. Let's talk about the night, about the, about the fateful night in Montreal and kind of who knew, who didn't know, what were the plans that were put into place and, and, and was there meetings the night before and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so, I mean, Vince's thing was almost nobody can know. I mean, as far as, like, Jerry Briscoe knew for sure. I don't know who, I mean, I don't know who else knew, and Sean knew, because Jerry Briscoe, so the night before, they go to, it, 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 <laughs> This is the, 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 the craziness of it. I mean, you can just imagine this. I mean, it's like it's so funny because it's like it's the same business, but you couldn't even imagine any of this stuff going on now. So Jerry, you know, Jerry was an old-time amateur wrestling star, like his brother. So Jerry's in the hotel room with Sean, and he's telling Sean what's going to happen, and he's trying to teach him, like, self-defense moves in one <laughs> night <laughs> because who knows what's going to happen with Brett, right? Yeah. You know, they, so... so He's trying to give him this crash course in blocking wrestling moves, I guess. Right. So that's going on the night before. So Sean knows. As far as who else knew, they had a production meeting, and they told everyone that there would be a DQ finish Mm -hmm. and that they would be doing a four-way in Springfield, which was the next pay-per-view. And in that pay-per-view, it would be a four-way with um, Shamrock, Undertaker, Sean, and Brett, where Brett would lose early um, and be a four-way elimination match. Brett would lose early. He'd be out, and then... Whoever Sean ends up with it, Sean beats Undertaker, Ken, or whatever, whoever yeah. it is, at the end, and Sean wins, and that's where we're going to get to Sean and Steve Austin for WrestleMania. Mm-hmm. So that's what everybody, as far as the, the big wigs, the people who have to know, that's what they all thought going into that day. And then uh, that afternoon, you know, there's the crazy... So Vin, Vince decided... Here's, here's, here's Vin, another one. But just quickly before that, so Vince decided a few days beforehand that I'm going to have to... Pull a swerve on this guy to get the title I, off. I, I'm, I'm thinking Wednesday night. Okay, after, gotcha. after all that because well, he was discussing it Wednesday night. Right. Yeah, but he never told like okay, so like like Russo and Cornette and whoever else was in that room, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so he, they were definitely talking about a screw job, but Vince never told him he was actually going to do that. Like they didn't know until it happened. Gotcha. But so, but they but, were in a discussion where it was talked about. Um, so you're going to say there's something else that crazy happened the day of? So no, no, this is like here's here's another thing about. And this is, of course, the one where, where, where people will look back and go, aha, this is all a work, even though it really wasn't. You know, Brett had the documentary that they'd been filming on him for a couple, right. you know, a year and a half, Wrestling with Shadows. So Wrestling with Shadows, the, the plan, because I knew Paul Jay, you know, they would talk to me constantly. He was a director, yeah. So right. I'm well aware of all of this. So um, by weird coincidence, right? And they had this idea of this documentary, and, and honestly, like, you know, their idea of documentary to me was just like, I, I just didn't buy the premise, their original idea, right? Their original idea was just that um, it was kind of like his storyline in the sense of how wrestling has gone weird where people are cheering the bad guys and the real good guys are getting booed because, you know, Brett was doing the heel bit in the United States, but the baby face in Canada. So it's being produced by a Canadian company, and it's kind of about how you know, Brett, this great Canadian legend babyface, goes to the United States and he gets booed and they cheer Steve Austin, who's this, you know, who does all these heel things and how it's the changing of wrestling, which to me it's like, 
you know, bad guys turning good and being cheered and, and all that goes back to whether when Dusty Rose and Dick the Bruiser and Ray Stevenson, I mean, everyone in the world, right? It's just, it's just part of wrestling. It was nothing new or different other than the fact that he, was, he maintained being a babyface in Canada was different. That was different. But overall, it's like I thought, man, you know, I wasn't really that thrilled with this idea, this, this doc. So anyway, it's supposed to end at um, SummerSlam where Brett beats um, Undertaker and wins the title. So it ends with Brett finally winning his championship back after this whole year of, you know, chasing it type of a thing. That's sure, yeah, that's the idea, yeah. Okay, so Brett goes, you know, like, um, you know, like this Montreal match is huge. You guys need to come here. So they come there, you know, and it's like they're filming. They still have the right to film. Vince, Vince had given them the right to do anything they wanted, film anything, anyone. The only, I think, concession was that Undertaker could not gotcha. appear out of character. But everything else is fair game. Right. You know, now they're losing the wrestling war. They're, so so you're, you're doing stuff when you lose that you would never do when you're winning, which is right. including giving people access like that. And, and, and like now they would give people access, but they would have rights of whatever, right? You know, they would make sure it went their way. So because of that, Brett's wired when he goes in this meeting with Vince, which is the craziest thing because the, the key to the whole story in a lot of ways is, you know, Vince, Vince said, I went to Brett and I asked him to lose and he refused and he wouldn't lose the title. So I had to do what I had to do. And Brett's version was different. And it's going to be, he said, she said, and no one's going to know. The weirdest thing is, is that the frickin' uh, of all the conversations you've ever had, with Vince McMahon over finishes, blah, 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 you know, in a private room, right? Have you ever worn a wire? Of course not, right? Yeah. <laughs> who, and who would? That's probably the only time in history right. that somebody actually wore a wire while doing this because he's filming a doc. It's not like he's trying to entrap Vince. It's <laughs> yeah, the documentary, documentary that Vince probably knows in the back of his mind but forgot. And, but they're not even, and, and, you know, and Brett... Both. They didn't go in there thinking, oh, my God, this is all tape. They were just doing their normal conversation. Yeah. So as it turns out, that conversation, there's no video of it, but there's audio of it. So, they, you know, that's when it was like the key thing. Because Brett, it was funny because, like, after the skull goes down, and Brett, Brett's giving me his side, WWF's giving me his side, and the two key points were Brett says that, you know, I was willing to lose, and they say that he was never willing to lose. And in the conversation... Essentially, the conversation is a weird one because Vince never once asks him to lose. Vince is only discussing, you know, the finish and how to do it, and you work with Pat and, you know, lay it to lay out the match. But he does never ask him to lose, so Brett never says, I'm not going to lose. However, they're discussing a whole bunch of different things in this conversation. You know, one of them is, you know, as far as there's so much that week, because all over the Canadian media that week, it was Brett's going, Brett's going, and Brett would never admit to it because he was still kayfabe, right? And he was still trying to protect the match with Sean right. and all that. So, so he would never say anything, but everyone knew Brett was leaving. It was already out. I'd already reported it by um, yeah, probably Monday or Tuesday, you know, before Montreal. So it was out everywhere in Canada. In the United States, nobody knew because the American media didn't really cover wrestling like that. Brett, you know, Canadian media was much bigger. I mean, it was on TSN and everything. And yeah. Brett's, you know, Brett's leaving, and you know what that means for Montreal. Who knows? And it's one of the reasons the Montreal match got so big was because of that. Mm-hmm. The match was bigger because of it. Anyway, so the the whole thing, as far as um, Brett goes, you know, everyone knows. You know, I could call up Eric, and I could tell him, you know, don't make the announcement. And then Vince goes, well, you don't really have to do that. Everyone knows it's it's okay. You know, because I think one of the fears Vince had. 
you know, the story that Brett was going to go to Nitro the next day, was, which, which was told to the point of it became fact, even though there was absolutely nothing to it, um, because that was the great defense was he was going to take the title, he was going to go to Montreal in, in, in Memphis, I believe it was, the next day, and we, we, Vince had no choice but to do what he did. Right. So, so that was the story, and, and one of the things on that story that was so fascinating is, like, years later, do you remember when Brett went back to do the DVD with Vince? You know, the, the, the original Bret Hart DVD, when the, this was the first business that they ever did together after Montreal's years and years later, before the Hall of Fame. And they were going to do the hit piece DVD burying Brett like they did with Warrior. And Brett kind of got wind on it, and so Brett was, like, not wanting the hit piece, so he just goes, I'll, I'll work with you on the DVD, but I get creative control of the DVD. Okay, yeah. And, and they, they agreed to it, and, you know, Vince was as magnanimous as you could be, and, you know, talked to him, and Brett got his, his story out and everything like that. So before the DVD, so there's a woman named Marcy Engelstein. Do you know Marcy Engelstein by any chance? She was like Brett's old kind of manager or personal assistant or something. She was Brett's personal assistant. Yeah. So she worked with Brett through, throughout this period. So she went and flew to Stanford, and they all knew her. And she met Shane while they're, this was right before they're going to do the DVD, maybe a couple days before working out the deal or whatever. And, you know, Shane's real nice to her. She's real nice to Shane. And Shane's like, you know, it's really too bad things went down the way they did. You know, it's really unfortunate. We all respected Brett and all that. And it's like, but, you know, we did have no choice because Brett was going to go to, um, to, to Nitro the next day. There was just no choice. We had to do what we had to do. Right. And Marcy, who knew me at the time, you know, Marcy called me up and goes, can you believe that Shane, it's like, and she's going like, Shane, that's just not the case. It's like, it, even Shane believes that Brett was going to go to Montreal. Right. So he told his own son that story. So anyway, so that's, that's the depth of that story. So anyway, going back to the conversation. In the conversation, the one thing, you know, Brett does go. Everyone knows, you know, there's all this. I would like to go to, the next day they're in Ottawa, I would like to go to Ottawa and just, you know, relinquish the title, which means not losing it in the ring. And, and it's like, I just think everybody knows. I think it's probably the best thing for all. So, I mean, that is the one thing where Vince can say, well, you know, he didn't, he didn't insist on it. He just, this was a suggestion. But it was, you know, it was a way of not losing it in the ring, where given the, the, the nature of what that title meant and everything, I think from Vince's standpoint, as, as, I think it really was imperative that Vince, that, that Brett I should, had to lose to somebody on the way out. Yeah, that makes sense, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether, whoever it was or whatever it was. But I, I mean, the fact that, that those guys were in the hotel room the night before, before this conversation says that it was already in gear, and Vince in the conversation, everything Brett said, Vince is like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's so like, like agreeing. He's, just, he's trying to get his guard down, if you look at it in hindsight. So, like, Brett goes, you know, I mean, I could call up Eric and tell him not to, not to, not to announce I'm coming for, you know, another week or two until I lose the title. No, you don't have to do that. You know, I can, you know, just relinquish the title more. Oh, okay, whatever. Yeah, you can do that. Yeah. So he's just saying yes to anything because he knows he's got this plan in place going in that day. But the whole weird thing is, it's like, if he was not taped and that conversation was not out... I mean, it's just, you know, I mean, the story would probably be that, that Vince would say Brett refused to lose. Yeah. And, and he say, I yeah. had no choice. And, 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 and you couldn't say he was wrong because he did have to beat Brett on the way out in theory. Yeah, sure, for sure. So in that room beforehand, you said there's Jerry Briscoe, Sean's in there, Vince's in there. Did Pat know? Because Pat always claimed that he never knew. Yeah, that's the one that I don't know. Because Pat's the one who came up with a sharpshooter spot. So I don't know what Brett thinks today, but I know that. When when it happened, he thought Pat had to know because Pat came up with the 
Because Pat was the agent on the match. Yeah. But it it seems like so much of a coincidence to have that in there. And then, you know what I mean? Like, okay, that's the spot that we'll use. They just happen to be doing it. It seems very strange that it wouldn't have been kind of like, here's the spot that you have to put in the match. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of hard. I mean, Pat's always denied that he knew. And friends of Pat have always denied to me that he knew. But I also know that Vince wanted it, that it was very important that the boys thought Pat didn't know because then they wouldn't trust Pat. And he thought it was very important that, okay, we can't, you know, they may not trust me, but I got to do what I got to do, but I want them to trust everybody else. You know, especially a guy like Pat who's going to, you know, is involved in everybody's finishes because he's the, the finish guy, right? Sure. So I, I don't know the answer. I mean, it's like, if I look at it logically, the way everything went down, it's very hard for me to believe that that spot just coincidentally got in there, and it was, and it was, it was Pat's suggestion of doing the spot. It's just a very, you know, I mean, is how it, would they know? Blah, blah, is blah, it blah, possible blah. that Vince told Pat to put that spot in the match and say, don't say it came from me? Yeah, don't you think? That, that seems to be more, more apropos. Like, Pat, tell the, come up with this idea, it's from me, but don't tell them it's from me. Because if Pat goes and says, hey, you know, Brett, Vince has this idea, I mean, Brett, you know, in the back of his mind or even in the wildest dreams would never expect that, but Brett's also, you know, as old school as it gets and might be aware of that if, if it wasn't just kind of coincidentally thought from Pat, you know? Yeah, if it just was Pat just saying, like, how about we do this? It's not the worst idea. Sean gets him in a sharpshooter, he makes the ropes, or he reverses. And I guess it was reversed because if you watch the tape, you can see Brett reversing out of it when, when the match ends. Well, and that's, that's something that went through in the late 90s, early 2000s, big time. You can watch all of the big matches from that time frame, and everybody was doing everybody else's finish. Right. I mean, to the point where Vince just went, stop, not anymore. Yeah. You know, because everybody, I think I beat, uh, I think I even won the, um, the the Undisputed Championship with a stunt or a rock bottom on rock. You know what I mean? Like, that's just how things went back in those days. So um, as far as the match goes itself, what's kind of, I mean, we know all this stuff, but just to continue to tell the story, Brett goes in the ring with no idea. Sean goes in the ring. Now, Hebner, obviously, Earl Hebner knows about it, the referee. You know, I've heard different versions. Earl's story always was that he's about to go through the curtain, and they told Dave, his, his twin brother. Yeah. And, and it's just like, Earl, this is what's going to happen. And as soon as you make that call, you run to the back, and your, your bags are packed, and you get in the car with Dave, and you're gone. So no, none of the boys see you, or they don't, you know, it happens so quick, right? Which is what he did, which is funny, because there was a guy who called me, like, you know, the minute the show goes off the air. It's, it's a fan, actually, um, you know, a historian, who called me and just goes, oh, my God, they did the gorgeous George Don Eagle finish. And I, I have no idea what he's talking about. And I don't even realize at this point that it was a double cross. I just thought, well, that's the weird way to get at it. You know, I, I knew, you know, that's the weird way to change the title, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. and I'm just thinking, I didn't, I didn't realize it was like a, a double cross until, you know, about 10 minutes later when, when Doug Furness called me up and he's just absolutely furious. Oh, wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just furious. And, 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 and he's just going, you won't believe what happened. And, and, and I actually said, because of the call I had just gotten, oh, I think I know what happened. I think it was, no, you don't know what happened. You don't. And he's going like, and he's just furious because, remember, Brett's son is there. Right. And he goes, Brett's son is crying right in front of me. And this, he was, he was just so livid that they double. And, you know, he was, I don't know how close he was with Brett, but he's, you know, all the guys respected Brett anyway. So he was just like, you know, what a horrible thing to do and blah, 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 blah. And it was like, and it was like that all night. But he was like the first one. And, um, 
you know, that, and that's when, like, by the end of the night, you know, there's that talk of, like, everybody boycotting television the next day, which almost nobody did. I think um, Mick, Foley was the, Mick Foley was the one. He actually did. Mick Foley did refuse to go to television over that and sat out for a couple of weeks or maybe a week until he realized that, like, everybody else is going on with their life. <laughs> what yeah. is my protest thing at this point? You know, um, it's it's interesting because so 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 w- w- when I was watching, let me ask: you, was this the same uh, show that that uh, Foley and Undertaker had Hell in the Cell? No, that was Pittsburgh. Okay, so I was watching that one though, and I remember saying, "Oh, well, that was kind of a flat finish," and not really understanding what went what went on, you know. And then to see kind of Brett and the destruction afterwards, and thinking like, "That's weird." I mean, what did you think when you saw it when you watched it? I just thought that it was. Because see, it was it was weird. Because I kind of knew what was going on, but I kind of didn't. In the weird sense of, I thought for sure that Brett was going to lose because it was it was the only thing that made sense to me. Right? Is is this is, is he's, he starts with WCW December first. This pay per view is in November. It's the only finish that I would think of until I I kind of knew that there was weird stuff going on, but I didn't know about the creative control. I didn't know about the back and forth, but I did get someone who told me, um, God, in the last day or two, that, that Brett is not losing it in Montreal, but he's going to lose it after Montreal. So that's kind of what I was told, you know, I, I think it was the day before. So I'm kind of watching going, okay, they're going to do some weird finish, and he's going to lose it later, and then he loses it, and I'm going, oh, you know, they've changed their mind or whatever. But, you know, yeah, yeah. When I'm watching it, it's just like, that's a weird ending that, you know, under a weird circumstance. And I guess that they all got what they wanted, not realizing it was a double cross until, you know, I, like I said, I didn't think it was a double cross until a guy called me up, like, you know, the show's right sure. off the air. My phone's ringing. It's one of my best friends. And he's telling me about the gorgeous George Don Eagle match. And he said, go back and watch that referee when he makes the call and he's gone. And he goes, that's what happened in gorgeous George and Don Eagle, which was a similar double cross for a world title in Chicago where Don Eagle got double-crossed, and the referee makes the count, and it was three-count, and he sprints to the back. And he goes, that's how I knew, you know, that's, that's how I knew. And I go, oh, okay, maybe, maybe it was a double-cross. And then Furnace called, and that was when it was like, oh, very clear it was double-cross, or to me. So talk about the fallout over the next couple of days. I mean, you mentioned the boycott of TV, and obviously, you know, Foley was the only one didn't show up. But, then, you know, that was when the Hart Foundation would kind of was at its peak with Davy Boy and Owen and Neidhart, and then... Kind of the whole falling out where, where Vince came in the or Brett came in the dressing room afterwards and he punches Vince. I mean, how much do you know about all that sort of stuff? Yeah. Okay. So afterwards, um, Vince locks himself in his room in his office while this is going on. And Undertaker's pounding on the door. Really? Yeah. 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 Pounding. What's what's going on? What's going on? And and so Vince finally you know tells him whatever he tells him. I don't know. You'd have to ask Undertaker what sure. it was. But but that happened. So. Vince decides to go to the dressing room, and Brett's there, Davey's there, Neidhart's there. I know Rick Rude's there. There's probably a couple of others. And Brett's in the shower, and just he's, he's fuming, of course. You can remember, he's in the aftermath. He's, you know, wa- waving, like, the letters, the, the initials WCW in the air in front of the fans, and he's breaking monitors, and he's throwing stuff around, and Owen and, and Neidhart and Davey are trying to calm him down. And they're all, they're all mad because they were supposed to do a run in there. You know, the finish was... You know, Hunter and China come in for the DQ, and then Owen and Davy Boy and those guys chase them oh, out. Right? Okay, so that was so. So Brett and uh, Brett was told it's going to be a DQ finish. Right, right, right. Gotcha. And the, the, the only thing they were debating was it was it was Hunter and um, Hunter was going to run in, and China was going to run in. And Vince explains the whole thing to him, and then you know um, Owen and and Davy and Nightheart run in, and then that gotcha. how it ends. 
And I remember the discussion was, Brett, you have your choice on this. Do you want to punch China or not? It'll get a big pop, but I don't know if you want to do it. And he just goes, man, I think I'll do it. Yeah. So, so, so that was the one point of discussion. Also, of course, none of this is going down. And they, you know, so, so they're, you know, they're all, you know, whatever. They're probably not happy either. And, and Brett's just fit to be tied. So anyway, back in the dressing room, Brett's in the shower and says something like, you know, if, if I come out of the shower, you better not be here. I'm going to deck you or something like that. This is the Nightheart told me this story once. And, and, and I mean, Brett's told me it in detail, actually, many times. But, but Nightheart's version, since it wasn't Brett and it wasn't Vince, not that, you know, whatever. Sure. You know, it, it, it's, it's a third party. I remember yeah. I had him on the, he just goes, Brett goes, if, uh, he's hit like almost a joke. goes, if you come, if, you, if, if when I get out of the shower, you're, you're not here, I'm going to deck you. And then I go, well, so what happened? He goes, you got out of the shower, Vince was there, and he decked him. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Classic so, Nightheart too, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He did that in a really funny way. Yeah. <laughs> so Brett knocks him out, you know, and, and it's funny because if you see the wrestling with shadows, you can see that they're, they're in the dressing room with Brett and Sean. Where Sean is like, Sean's in there at some point, you know, you know I had Bleeding, nothing to do with this, God is my witness, I had nothing to do with it, Sean's in tears, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so, so that's filmed, and then Owen tells those, the cameramen they got to leave when Vince goes in. So if, like, Owen doesn't tell them to leave and they're actually in there, who, you know, maybe they would have had the footage and everybody <laughs> for sure would know it was a work because, because they would have seen it. <laughs> right. Because if you see the punch, you right, then it has to be a work, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, but even though when people didn't see the punch... And, you know, and they see Vince stumbling out and everything, they think, oh, for sure it's a work because whatever. So, I mean, that whole thing, it's like when I heard that, it was like, it was almost hard because I'd heard like later that night, I heard this, so this is about an hour or two later, I get a call from someone, did you hear that Brett knocked out Vince? And now I go, what? Now I'm thinking it's a work again. Yeah. You know, and then, you know, when I talked to Brett and Brett's going in the whole thing and, and, and you know, going into the whole detail of everything, it's like Brett was so emphatic and so believable and... I just remember, you know, like the whole thing where, you know, I go, this is what they're saying. And Brett just goes, this is the story. And he goes, and I always remember this. He goes, everything I just told you, I will be able to prove to you in due time, which in fact, in due time between the legal letters and the, the conversations mm-hmm. that, that Paul Jay had, had taped, pretty much, you know, that's, he did prove everything that he said was 100% accurate. Yeah, exactly. And then, because that was always the big thing that it was, it was a big work or whatever. But you can tell, have one conversation with Brett. Uh, especially back in those days, and you'll know it was real because I think overall he was completely hurt and devastated that this guy that was, you know, another father figure yeah. to him betrayed him that way. And I, I, especially when I think Brett always felt like it didn't have to be this way. There's there's a million other ways we could have done it, you know. Right, and, and and also like like from the Brett perspective, I mean, you're looking at a guy. You know, he went through that horrendous schedule period that they had. And, yeah. like, you know, probably missed, what, one or two matches, you know, other than yeah. he had the, the sternum injury. But, I mean, he, you know, you know, you know how the guys were then, and, and I mean, even guys are now, too. But, you know, how I mean, even then it was even more where, you know, you worked through every injury and you worked, you know, like legitimately 300 days a year. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, like they had an insane schedule. You know, because I remember, you know, you, I would see guys in WWF in that period, like late, the late 80s period where they'd work 28, 29 straight days when they would come to, like, you know, Oakland or San Francisco and I would see them. And, I mean... They were zombies. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean yeah. That schedule was just, it was just, you know, like when people would look back at the house shows back then and just go, oh, you know, those house shows weren't that good. And they weren't because, like, you couldn't, you couldn't work that pace with no break for so long. And, and that travel, you know, because it sure. also was insane travel. It wasn't like now where, let's say, you go to, yeah. um, 
let's say you'll fly into Los Angeles, do Los Angeles, you'll do Bakersfield, you'll do San Diego, you'll do Fresno, right? You know, yeah. the tra- I mean, they would do like, you know. Los Angeles, San Phoenix, Diego, Philadelphia, Boston, New York, yeah. Tampa, New York, yeah. yeah. All, all in four straight days. It, it made, they did travel that made no sense. It was insane. And, and even when I first started in 99, it was like that because it was all big arena shows, you know, because it was so hot. But, right, right. Um, but let, let, let's talk about the fallout. I mean, this is the wrestling business. And like you said, I'm sure there was a lot of people that were angry. But then the week or two goes by and then you got to make money for your family. Right. I don't really think overall that Vince really missed a step with the boys. But where he did miss a step was with the fans because he came on the air the next night to explain what had happened. And I think in his mind, thought he was going to be come out of it as a big baby face, but the exact opposite happened. Okay, it's so actually a week later, I believe, Okay, when it happened. But yeah, because I had been told, you know, during that week, cause I was talking to, you know, a lot, a lot of, it was the biggest story I ever covered at that point in time. I mean, it was insane. Right. So, and, and everyone, so, so anyway, I remember being told, essentially, Vince had filmed the thing, and I was told the gist of what he said, and I go, oh my God, I can't, because the gist of what I was told, you know, you know, it's the, the, the Brett Screwed Brett interview, that Vince was going to go in there. And, you know, the, the things that shocked me, number one, is he was essentially going to tell you that the finish was all a work, that pro wrestling's a work, which on their TV, even though, yes, Vince would, 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 would tell a sportscaster, you know, in public, are your finishes predetermined? Yes, of course, we're all a show. But you never did it during the body of your television show. To me, that was like a really unbelievable thing. But the other one was is that he was going to say, and this is the one where, where, where I was like, I can't believe he's going to do this. It's just like, this is Vince's ego now. This doesn't make sense because no fan wants to hear this. This is, this is a 1997 fan. You know, like, like today, fans will probably go, what are you talking about? Because, again, everything back then is different from now. But, you know, Brett was the world champion, and, and people wanted to believe that the world championship was somewhat, I don't want to say real, but I think they wanted to believe all wrestlers were really tough guys. Okay? Right. So, so during the speech... You know, Vince goes, I gave him a free shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I gave him a free (laughs) shot to hit me. And even at my age, if it had been a fair fight, it would have ended a different way. And I remember being told, like, not not exactly those words, but pretty much those words before it aired. And I said, oh, my God, I can't believe he's going to do that because it's like, whether true or not, and who the hell cares, you know, who would win a fair fight between the two of them? I don't care. It doesn't matter to me one bit. I do not want to watch a wrestling show and have the, the, the 52-year-old television announcer, owner, whatever, say that he could beat up the world champion if it was a real fight. I just don't want to hear that during a show, and I don't think any other fan wants to hear that either. And, you know, at, at the end, and plus, Brett was a total babyface coming out of this, and then Vince was just, like, trying to blame it all on Brett. And it was just one of the... But, but yeah, the whole thing was Vince wanted to... Vince's idea of doing that interview was, was to, to justify his position. He had to do what he had to do. He had no choice. He wouldn't do business. He wouldn't, you know. Yeah. He, he wouldn't, you know. And, and it, it, it backfired to where everybody hated Vince. And then finally, and, you know, you know, and it was Vince Russo. Vince Russo said, you know, we've got to go with this. You'd be the greatest heel character. So they went with it, and, and he was right. He was the greatest heel character. And, and it changed. <laughs> it freaking changed everything. Yeah, like you said, it changed everything. You know, it's kind of like one of those things, like like uh, an Animal House movie, where you see you see at the end of the movie, kind of what everyone's fate was. Vince goes on to become the biggest heel in company history. Brett goes on to making big money with WCW and never really doing anything there. 
Right. Um, you know, when you think about, you know, it's a whole other story, but they get the hottest commodity, the biggest baby face in the business and completely mishandle it. And I know that because I was there. I mean, could you believe it? Oh. Like, like, like I, I remember like when it first started and um, I, I mean, it was blowing my mind watching, you know, how they had when, when, when he first came and how hot it was and how quickly they dissipated it. And, you know, yeah. and, and I'm, you know, the, the whole idea was to go with Brett and Hogan. At, at the next year's Starcade, and they just like talk about fumbling something. And the other one was, is Brett was a big star everywhere, but he was a freaking god coming out of that thing in Canada. Yes, huge you guys. You know, you know, you, you know, how many shows did you work in Canada over the next? You know, before you left for WWF, like three? two, three, maybe. <laughs> it was I mean, crazy. Like, they could have gone and sold out every major arena in Canada first time in, and still and, and done well consistently. Yes. I remember um, maybe a couple, I don't know the exact timeline, of course, I don't remember. I just know that beforehand I got a call when I was living in Orlando working for WCW from Bret Hart. And to get a call from Bret Hart at the time was like getting a call from, you know, Paul Stanley or Wayne Gretzky or like, you know, like <laughs> Bret Hart's calling me. And he called me because I don't think he really trusted or knew too many guys. And he knew me from Calgary or knew that I'd train there and said, you know, I'm coming in. What do you think? You know, what do I have to do? Who do I have to watch out for? And I remember at the time Hall and Nash were really, you know, brats, shall we say. And I was like, yeah, watch out for those two guys. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard, I know all about those guys. Obviously, he knew them from, from WWE. But I remember we had a house show in, I think, Mobile, Alabama or something. And there was a six man match. And Brett was going over the match in the dressing room with them. And uh, they were like, yeah, who cares? It doesn't matter. And he was like, what do you mean it doesn't matter? He goes, well, it doesn't, they don't, you know, Hall and Nash were kind of like, that's a small crowd or it doesn't make a difference or why do you care so much? And I remember him just going, I can't believe the attitude here. Nobody gives a shit. I can't, I can't believe it. I've never, ever experienced this in my entire career where nobody cares about the quality of the match. He goes, I don't know how it's going to go for me here. And we saw how that went. It didn't go very well for him other than the fact he made lots of money. But, you know, I don't think Brett was really a guy who really cared completely about the money. Oh, he was, he, he, it was, it was funny because um, this, this was not in the movie. But Paul J. went, whatever it was when Brett did his first Nitro, you know, yeah. it was mid-December. Paul J. went down there to film, because, you know, perhaps to, to, for stuff that would be in the movie. And I remember Paul J. telling me, you know, and it's like, this is, he just started there. So, I, I, you know, I, I had high hopes for, for Brett and WCW. I thought, like, you know, he's super hot, and it's a whole new cast of characters. They have all these stars, you know what I mean, that, that he can work with, that he'd never worked with, or he hadn't worked with in years, and, and you know, you know, just all of this stuff, right? You just you come in with like this is this it's going to be great for Brett, and I remember Paul Jay going, "It's not the same, yeah, not the same." And 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 I just thought, well, you know, he's an outsider, he's a film guy, he doesn't. But he said, "It's it, WCW is so different from WWF," which I which I know. But I remember like he told me that even before anything, and I think Brett. I don't know how quick it was, but but what you just said probably knowing knowing Brett. I mean, one of the things about Brett, and it's funny because you know a lot of people because because this this one kind of relates to you too. You know, people will go like, "Oh my God!" Like, you know, Brett was took it so seriously. Brett, you know, whatever he's a mark for himself, whatever the term is, right? Yeah. And I go like, whether it's you or Brett or or Shawn Michaels or you know whoever that's a a medium sized guy who made to the top based on whatever it is that got you to the top, right? One of the things that if you were not 100% committed to your career and you didn't take it 100% seriously, you'd have been a mid-card guy forever. Absolutely. He'd have, been a he'd, he'd have yeah. never gotten out of that tag team thing. Absolutely. Or, or, or if he did, he'd have been 
at that low intercontinental level. He had never been a world champion. He'd never, and if he was a world champion, they'd have, they'd have um, gotten it off him right away. If, if he couldn't do the promos with conviction, which is, I guess, the key thing, but to do the promos with conviction, you've you got to be into your character, right? I mean, yeah. you, you would know this better than anyone. No, absolutely. And he believed he was the best in the world. Um, you know, the, or the best there is, the best there was, the best there ever will be. Just like when I was calling myself the best in the world in 2008, there were nights when I was. There was no doubt in my mind. Right. But I think Brett was really affected by that because, like I said, to go into the to a match coming off this really big you know, angle and to know that people don't give a shit if the match is good or not and aren't even trying, I think it kind of killed his, his, his love for the business. And you could see his career kind of crumbled very quickly after that, not to mention Owen's, you know, Owen's right. death. And then he got the back concussion from Goldberg. But it, I felt really happy when he finally came back to the WWE um, because I think it's where he belonged and where he needed that closure for himself um, because of all that stuff that happened. And so I, I feel a lot better about the legacy and the history of Bret Hart now than I did, you know, in 1999, because uh, I think it was a, a shitty ending for a guy who at one point was the best there is and who gave a lot to that company and had it taken away. And it really affected him because I think he felt really betrayed. So I was happy when he came back. Yeah, I think with hindsight, I have to say that it was that that was something that was needed. It, it did need to happen because the other thing, too, is is like. Now, I mean, it's like, you know, you know how, like, if he had never come back, I'm not saying that they would have completely buried his legacy, but it would have been different, really, really different in the sense of um, just a lot of things. And I think he does, I mean, he worked really hard and he was really, really great at what he did. And he deserves to be recognized when you're doing the Paul Heyman promo the other night where he compared AJ Styles to Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart, and yeah. Blair. If he 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 belongs in that conversation. Yes, and you know you don't want it to be like it was for all those years with Bruno San Martino, where it's a forbidden term on your television. You know, I mean, it's good that, and I think it was great for Brett because it's like you don't want you know. I think it got whatever it was out of his system. Everybody ended on you know. I think that's why he doesn't really like to talk about it so much anymore. Where you know it's it it finally yeah. ended, but you know the Owen thing. I mean, you know, they think about this from Brett's standpoint too, which was which was a killer when the Owen thing comes, is that now it's your brother, right? And whether this would have happened or wouldn't have happened, okay, in Brett's mind, you know, because everyone knows Owen didn't want to do that thing, right? He right. didn't want to go up there, but he did it because it was his, his job and everything, right? And Brett's sitting there going like, if I was there, because he had power, I could have I could have nixed it if I had just stayed. Yeah, and yeah. you know, it's like you know, is it? You know, is it worth? Did I make so? So did I make the right decision in coming here? Well, number one, yeah, I did make money, a lot of money, but you yeah. know, it, had I stayed in WWF, where would my career be? It had been much better. There's not, there's no question. Mm-hmm. Much for the next three years. I mean, Austin would have been the top guy, but Brett would have. You know, obviously Brett's going to be in the mix with with, with the Rock and Austin and Triple H and all those guys. And he's going to be there for that ride, going to the top, and he's going to be one of the biggest guys there. And he missed out on it. And granted, WCW was huge at the time too, but you know, and he was there. But it was like it was a mess. It was a complete mess. He had no. There's nothing fulfilling creatively, and and that's nothing compared to if he was there and he was one of the top guys. And Owen is is just goes, you know, I'm not comfortable. You know, he would he have gone to Vince and go, just don't do it. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if he would. He doesn't know if he would. But there's the chance he would have, and Owen would. St- and again, you know, Owen's death, unlike so many of the deaths in wrestling, 
Owen's death was like a thousand percent, just like never should happen death, right? The other ones were, there were guys that were time bombs, right? That, that, you know, it happened because it happened and it was inevitable or because you don't mess around and, and things. But Owen's was like the one that had nothing to do with any of that. And, and, and there's, it's like there's no... And, think, and, and, you know, just, just imagine... You know, for me, though, Dave, too, I mean, that's fate. And it's, it's like saying, you know, what if he would have been there? And what if he just would have said, oh, Owen, just go do it? How much worse would he have felt? Yeah, so, yeah really. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, you can't ever judge like that. Um, and it's, you know, it's like I told you the story of what if I would have answered the phone when Chris Benoit called me Saturday morning? Would it have made a difference? Who knows? But the point for me was that Bret Hart deserved to be remembered more than just as the victim of the Montreal screw job. We need to remember Brett as far as the architect behind the Steve Austin uh, double turn, the brilliant you know uh, WrestleMania 13 double turn with Shamrock as the referee, the the amazing Owen Hart uh, match that he had at WrestleMania one. You know all those or not WrestleMania the, the WrestleMania ten, all those great moments that he had. To me, I, I think of that when I think of Bret Hart, I think of those moments more than the victim of the Montreal screw job, which you wouldn't have if he hadn't have come back. And kind of made those those uh, amends and, and gotten that closure from from Vince and from Sean as well. Yeah, I think the closure was real was real important to him. And yeah, yeah, I, I agree. With you. The thing about Brett that that um, I you know when I when I think back at Brett's career, you know, with with hindsight, the one thing that I will always remember is like when he would have those big main event matches on pay per view, and and it was just, you know it's, it's a testament to his storytelling. It's like he would get me in a certain grip grip that that like you know not rick flair and not Shawn michaels yeah. ever did as great as they were and they and, they, and they're two of the best i've ever seen yeah. it's like there was a dimension that brett would get in the matches where i would be like a different level of fan and rooting interest and it meant it, it felt more i mean the only way to say it is it felt more real and less performance and i i always would think about that because when brett didn't like it was funny because brett didn't like me until the montreal thing mm-hmm. you know i mean which we ended up being being really good friends, but up until then, like, you know, it was for whatever reason. Okay. Yeah. But I remember, like, like Brett was a guy who didn't like me, and I'd watch his matches, and it was just like, God damn, I'm so into his matches. <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah. I think for me, and, and just as we wind up here, um, I, I think it's hard to say who's the greatest of all time. To me, the, there's a trifecta. I mean, I think it's between Flair, Sean, and Brett. For me, personal preference, I'd take Sean. But I think you could make a case for all three of those guys being the greatest of all time in different ways. And I think, Brett, definitely uh, over the years, people have forgotten just how good he is because everyone talks about Flair. And Sean is still, he probably was, was, was great up until his last match, which was only a couple of years ago. And Brett's been gone for, you know, basically after that WWE run in 97, that was basically the end of his career. I mean, there's a couple of decent ones in WCW, but nothing you'd write home about except for the one with Benoit ben in Kansas Nolan. City. Yeah, yeah, but you're right. Yeah. But you know what I mean? So I like to kind of remind people, and it's another reason I wanted to do this show with you, is that Brett is in the, you know, the Mount Rushmore of the greatest technical performers that can make you believe what he was doing of all time. So last question, Dave. Could this ever happen again? And I think I know the answer, but could it? And You know, I mean... The thing is, it could never have the, the repercussions because it's a completely different business. Um, you don't have the wrestling wars. I mean, there's, there's so many things that happen that, you know, I guess the answer is no. Right. Um, you know, will there be another, another double cross at some point historically? Probably yes, but it, it, it probably, it, I doubt, you know, the circumstances would make it any kind of a story like it is now. And, and again, I, I can't imagine even happening in WWF, but, but, I mean, WWE, but perhaps it could, you know, perhaps... 
if it was if it was orchestrated by Vince, it could because even the Brock Lesnar Randy Orton SummerSlam match last year was a little bit of a double cross, not on those two, but on everybody else. It right. was a complete swerve, you know, that was orchestrated by him. Yeah, I mean, well, there's there's stuff, you know, which you know, with, with you know, anytime you have Heyman in the mix, you're you're going to look That's at true. something where you're, <laughs> you're going to have a guy who's going to. You know, you know everything with Brock because of Heyman and, and Vince because they want to keep him special is going to be like out of the box. What can mm-hmm. we do that that isn't normal? But that that was something different. I mean, like what you know, we I don't I can't imagine. I mean, I I, I cannot imagine like an in wrestling story. You know, other you know, like a death is something completely different. But an yeah. in wrestling story that could ever be as big as this. You know, unless you know, I mean, promotional war or something like that. But but like a one incident that that in theory, like when it happened, it was. It was big. I mean, like you knew it was big when it happened, real, real big. But it's amazing looking back twenty years because it's it's so much bigger actually yeah. than it even appeared it was going to be because of everything that we talked about today from start to finish. You know, you take these thirty different things and you pull one of them out, and it's like, where is wrestling today if that doesn't happen? Yeah, that's... you know, I mean, it's like it'd still be popular and would still be big, but but we would be. You know, the TV product would be different in a different way. I don't think people would be so open on TV about certain things. Yeah, who the hell knows? It's it's um it's mind-boggling when you think about it, man. Like you said, the, the, the besides uh, the, the the tragedy, it's the biggest news story in in our generation and possibly ever. Yeah, but I mean, uh, here's, here's another one too. The reason the company went public was because they made so much money and they were so successful during that Austin period. You take Vince as a heel out of that Austin period. Yeah, does it get does it get anywhere near as big? Great I mean, point. I mean, I mean, there's there's no way. Of, I think probably not. Because I think Vince was just so important. You take Vince out of that thing, you, you never have Stephanie as a character. You never have Shane as a character. They're just behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. And people. once again, maybe, if, if maybe it, and maybe they do become characters. I mean, who who knows? But, and if Brett isn't gone, does Austin? You know, is he the number one complete choice? I mean, we knew that Vince knew that, but would it have been as quickly? And with the catalyst of Vince being involved, I mean, like you said, it's the alternate realities of this are pretty mind blowing when you think about it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, Dave, thanks, man. It's always a pleasure talking to you, and this has been uh, something I want to do for a long time. Very, very interesting stuff. Okay, anytime. Thanks. Yeah, this was this was quite interesting. Cheers, man. Talk to you soon. Okay, cool. Thanks to Dave Meltzer, uh, our good friend of the show from Wrestling Observer Newsletter. You should subscribe if you don't already. Go to WrestlingObserver.com for the up-to-date news every single day. Lots of great stuff on there, and uh, amazing how influential it is in happenstance in hindsight. The uh, Montreal Screwjob was great to be able to talk about that 20 years later. Well, 20 years plus a month or two now um, with Dave Meltzer, but uh, what's not 20 years later, the se- second segue uh, with the same one all over again. Uh, book your cabin for the Chris Jericho Rock and Wrestling Rager at sea. If you haven't already done that either, because it's not going to be in 20 years, it's going to be in about nine months, October 27th to the 31st, going from Miami to the Bahamas, Nassau. And remember, for as low as $150, you can reserve your cabin at ChrisJerichoCruise.com, and everything is included in the price, all the food, all the activities, the live podcast, stand-up comedy shows, meet and greets, concerts, rock and roll shows, and, of course, the Ring of Honor, Sea of Honor tournament, all covered in the price of your cabin. You get a signature with Jim Ross, doesn't cost you a thing. It's all inclusive. The only thing you pay for is drinks and gambling. Even your food is for free on the cruise ship. It's the Norwegian Jade. It's one of the greatest cruise ships in the world today. The food is immaculate. The fun is immaculate. It's going to be a great time. And you're going to get to see and hang out. Remember, this is a cruise ship. There's nowhere to go. Everyone I'm going to uh, name right now is going to be hanging around uh, and and meeting and greeting all you. Jim Ross, Jerry the King Lawler, SoCal Val, Mick Foley, Ricky the Dragon, Steamboat, Rey Mysterio, Cyrus 
Harris and Paul Lazenby doing a live kill in the town versus keeping it 100 with Conan, Shane Helms, and Disco Inferno. Dave and Tim from Beyond the Darkness will be there giving out some scary tales and also some great true crime tales. You can hear Dave uh, with uh, true crime tales uh, earlier this week. It's a great podcast if you want to check it out. Uh, Colt Cabana and Marty DeRosa are going to be doing their unprofessional wrestling show. It's almost like Mystery Science 3000 where they go and make fun of wrestling matches live. I can't wait to see that one. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Ron Funches, Jim uh, Brewer, Brad Williams, three of the funniest comedians in America doing live stand-up. Jim's going to be playing with his great band, The Loud and Rowdy. Phil Campbell and the Bastard Sons will be there. King, Fozzie, The Stir will be there. One of Atlanta's greatest rock and roll bands right now. The Dave Spivak Project, Speewee will be there. The Darlings of Rock and Roll, The Cherry Bombs, Shoot to Thrill, the world's best female ACDC cover band, Blizzard of Oz, the world's best Ozzy Osbourne cover band, and of course, uh, Busted Open Radio is going to be there. That's what I was trying to remember. Busted Open Radio, Dave LaGreca, maybe Bubba Dudley might be there as well, but of course, the PS de Resistance, Ring of Honor, presenting the Sea of Honor tournament aboard the ship. Matches happening in the middle of the ocean, and the winner of the Sea of Honor tournament gets a Ring of Honor World Heavyweight Championship shot in the future. The Young Bucks will be there, the villain Marty Skrull, the Briscoe Brothers, Dalton Castle, Frankie Gazarian, Christopher Daniels, Adam Page from the Bullet Club will be there. The American Nightmare, Cody, don't call him Rhodes, and Cody's wife, Brandy, are going to be there. Jay Lethal just added this week, and more names to come. There's a huge name that's going to be added. It's going to blow you away, knock your socks off, all that sort of stuff. Go to ChrisJerichoCruise.com to find out all information and to reserve your cabin now. All right. Uh, and this weekend, I guess what we want you guys to have a great weekend. Uh, and after the weekend is done, I'm rewarding you with another great uh, podcast involving uh, the world, the crazy world of wrestling, pro wrestling, and uh, coming full circle. I talked to him before he was in the WWE. He had a great run in the WWE, and now he's moving on to other things. The return of James Ellsworth is going to be here. Chince McMahon says everything that he wants to say in his first interview after uh, leaving the WWE. He will be here on Wednesday, so we'll talk to you then. In the meantime, and in between time, that's it. Another edition of Talk is Jericho. Stay hard, stay hungry, stay cool. Peace, love, and hugs, and a big yeah boy.